Well, good morning. Great to see you all here this morning. Hey, I know our kids are on their way down, but let's, uh, let's give them a hand and say thank you for helping us worship this morning. Yeah. You all have some good-looking kids. That's all I know. But uh, what an awesome morning already. And you picked a great morning to be here at Connecting Point. Uh, you know, every Sunday is a great Sunday to be here, but this is a special Sunday. This is the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with what Advent is, you know, maybe you've heard of it before and you know it's one of those churchy words, but you're not quite sure what it is. Uh, let, me, let me just tell you, first of all, that for anyone who considers themselves to be a follower of Jesus, Advent is a really big deal. In fact, uh, it's the reason that we gather here today. Uh, it's the reason why that we gather every Sunday. Without it, we wouldn't have a reason to gather together. Uh, that, that word Advent is a word that simply means coming. And so uh, the Advent season, which goes from the last Sunday of November all the way through Christmas Eve, is a time where we focus our attention and we celebrate the coming of Jesus. We, uh, we first of all, we look back at over 2,000 years ago when Jesus came as Emmanuel, God incarnate, God in the flesh, came to be uh, with us and to save us and deliver us from the power of sin and bring us into relationship with God. And so we, we look back uh, at the first coming of Jesus, but Advent is also about looking forward because there's more than one advent. There's actually a second advent that we look forward to, a second coming when Jesus will come again, this time not as a helpless little baby in swaddling claws lying in a manger, but this time he'll come as a conquering king ready for his people, his bride, come to take us and deliver us and set everything that is wrong in the world right again. And his expectation is that we live in such a way, we're, we're in this in-between time, between advents, but we, we live in such a way that we're prepared for the time when he will come again. And not only do we want to live in such a way that we're prepared, but we want to work at preparing others. That's why we exist. That's why we do what we do, in order to be prepared and help other people be prepared when Jesus comes again. Well, for the past uh, couple of months, we've been kind of working our way through this series called The Kingdom Experiment. If you've been around, you, you know that, and we've just been taking some time to slowly and methodically work our way through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But this morning, we're just going to put that on hold for a little bit till after the first of the year, and uh, we're going to shift gears to this Advent series that we're calling The Way I See It, Christmas Through Their Eyes. This is like, that's like the longest title I think I've ever given to a, but we're getting fancy now. We have titles and taglines and all that kind of stuff, but anyway, Christmas Through Their Eyes. And uh, a few years ago, I got this idea because there was a movie that came out a few years ago uh, called Vantage Point. Anybody see that movie, Vantage Point? Which is why it was a bust, because I'm like the only one that saw it. I think it made like $7. Uh, but anyway, it was this movie that came out, and it had um, a really interesting premise. And the premise of the movie was that uh, they took this 10-minute this period of time where there was an assassination attempt upon the President of the United States, and they just played that 10 minutes 
over and over and over again, each time through, through the perspective of uh, different eyewitnesses. And so each person had a different vantage point. And at the end of the movie, you kind of figure out what was going on as all of these perspectives were put together. And so what the movie did, it was interesting because it dealt with the reality that even though several people can all experience the same event, all be eyewitnesses to the same event, they see it differently. And, and the way to get the whole truth is to put all of their experiences and their stories together. And, and, and when I saw that movie, the first time I saw it, I thought, you know, that's the Bible, right? I mean, the Gospels are a great example of that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and in the Gospels, you find that there are a number of stories that each of the Gospels tell the same story. And, and sometimes people will try to discredit the Bible because they're like, okay, they're telling the same story, but they're not telling it the same. They're, they're telling it different, and so it must not be true. It must be made up. And, and of course, that's not true. The, the reason there's a difference is because they're telling the story from a different vantage point, that each of them have a different perspective, each of the gospel writers. And, and oftentimes, truthfully, they have a different purpose, that they, they write the gospels for a particular purpose, and so one writer may include one detail that others don't because they're trying to drive home a certain point. And they may omit other details because it's not pertinent to the point that they're trying to, to drive home. And so you have to put all of the accounts together in order to get the whole story. Well, this is the way that the story of Jesus' birth is laid out. You have this one huge, world-changing event that is told from a number of of different perspectives and it's only when we have put the accounts together that we get the entire story and, and so what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to look at this one very familiar story through the perspective of some of the eyewitnesses who were there but had each of them a different vantage point and, and I want to begin this morning with where Luke begins in his gospel when he tells the story. He begins actually with a couple lesser known, not, not less important, but lesser known characters in the story. Typically, whenever we think of the Christmas story, there are certain characters that we think of, right? Of course, you know, we think of the baby Jesus, of course. We think of Mary. We think of Joseph. We think of the wise men. We think of the shepherds. We think of the little drummer boy. Nobody caught that, did they? <laughs> but there, there are certain characters that we tend to think of, and uh, we are going to look at some of their stories in the weeks to come, but this morning I, I want us to look at Advent, the Advent of Jesus through the eyes of a woman named Elizabeth and her husband, Zachariah. Again, their story is found in Luke chapter 1. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you may want to turn there. We're not going to put it all up on the screen again because it's the story that, that Lincoln and Megan read for us a few minutes ago. But, but what I want to do this morning and the time that we have together is I want to take just a few minutes to, to dig a little bit into the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth kind of unpack who they really were and what were the circumstances of their lives that were taking place in this story. 
And then I want to give you uh, just four takeaways, four lessons that I think uh, their experience in the coming of Jesus taught them that I also think would be great for us to take away uh, with us as well. And so, uh, first of all, who were Zechariah and Elizabeth, and why are they important to the story of Jesus? Well, Luke tells us a little bit later in the story, we'll get to this next week, but when the angel comes to Mary and announces to her that she's going to give birth to the, the Messiah, it mentions that her relative Elizabeth is also going to have a baby. And so Elizabeth was uh, a relative of Mary. Now, we don't know what their relationship was. We don't know if she was a distant cousin. We don't know if she was an aunt. We, we don't know what the family connection was. We just know that there was one. Luke also tells us in verse 5 that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were descendants of Aaron. Now, now, that's important because it tells us that they were part of the, the priestly class, that Zechariah was a priest. And uh, Zechariah served as a priest. It tells us that it was during the time of Herod. So he served as priest during a very dark, difficult time in the history of Israel. This was a time of silence. It was a time where Israel had no prophetic voice and they had not had one since the days of Malachi. If you, if you look at your, your Bibles in the Old Testament, the last book of the Bible is Malachi. Just a few pages later is Matthew. And while a few pages to us doesn't seem like a whole lot, this represents 400 years of silence. This is the time. That Zechariah serves as a priest. 400 years. Imagine that. 400 years since Israel has had a prophet. 400 years of silence. 400 years of nothing from God. We, we all have seasons like that in our lives, don't we? We, we have these periods where, where it feels like that, that God is nowhere to be found. It, it, it seems like we can't hear his voice. It seems like we can't sense his presence and, and we all have those seasons in our life. But can you imagine Zechariah never having heard the voice of God in his entire lifetime? 400 years. Never experiencing the presence of God. This is how it was for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and yet it says in verse 6, something very important gives us a, a very important detail about what kind of people Zechariah and Elizabeth were because it says in the midst of the silence that they were both righteous and blameless in the sight of God. They were, they were righteous and blameless. In other words, even though they weren't hearing from God, they still did everything that they knew to do on their end to be able to live a life that would be pleasing and honoring to God. They, they, they didn't do, you know, what so many do, you know, just throw up their hands and be like, well, I can't hear from God. And so, you know, God doesn't care about me because he's not talking to me. He's not coming through. He's not doing what I want him to do. And so, and, and so uh, that, you know, that there must be something wrong with him or there must be something wrong with me and just kind of give up. They didn't do that. It says that they were righteous and blameless. Now, now, when Luke says righteous and blameless here, he doesn't mean perfect. In fact, we find out later in the story that they, they weren't perfect. They didn't do everything perfect. 
But, but, but after, when, 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 when they talked about being righteous and blameless, they, they did everything that they could on their end in order to maintain a relationship with God. This, the word that is used here, uh, and the important part is where it says they were righteous and blameless in the sight of God. That the word, the original language that's used here is, is, is intended to be relational. It, it, it actually means to sit across from in, in, the, uh, in the manner of a relationship, like sharing a meal together. And so there's this idea that what they longed for more than anything else was to have this relationship with God. And so what Luke is trying to help us understand is that these we're not just, you know, religious people who followed all of the rules out of religious duty, but they were people who longed and their deepest desire to was, was to have an authentic relationship with God. They were seeking to please him. And, and even though they may have been living in a period of time where God seemed silent, he still saw them and he had not forgotten about them. The last detail of Zachariah and Elizabeth's life that I want to point out is a big one. And it's the central part of the story. In verse 7, Luke tells us two things. That Zechariah and Elizabeth were old and they were childless. They were old and childless. In that culture, to be childless meant something. As difficult as it is in, in, in our culture, in that culture, for a woman, there was no greater shame, no greater disgrace than barrenness. For the people of that day, the highest honor for a woman was to bear children, in particular, sons, who would maintain and expand the family line. And for them, to bear a son was a sign of the honor of God, the favor of God resting on you and so if having a son was a sign of the favor of God to be unable to have a son was a sign of God's wrath it was a sign of God's hand against you in fact it was understood to be uh, more like a punishment for some hidden sin you know there must be some hidden sin that you have otherwise God's favor would be upon you but because there's this hidden sin his wrath is set against you so, so this is Zechariah and Elizabeth in a nutshell. They're, they're a couple of good people, godly people, trying to do what's right in the midst of great difficulty. And I think there's a number of lessons that, that we can take away from Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. And this morning, there's probably more than this, but this morning, I just want to focus on four. As, as we look at their story... I think the first and probably the most obvious lesson is this. Lesson number one, a faithful life does not equate to a pain-free life. I didn't expect to get a lot of amens on that one. I mean, we all like that, right? But, but, it, but it's true. In all my years of studying the Bible, never have I found anywhere where it says, you know, give your life to Jesus, live your life for him, honor him with your life, and you'll never experience any pain in your life. I keep looking for it, but I haven't found it yet. You, you know, you'll, you'll never experience any heartache if you give your life to Jesus. 
I can't find anywhere where it says that. But, but still, for some reason, in the back of our minds, we tend to think that's the case. You know, you know how I know that? Because what do we do when we face challenges and difficulty and pain? We, we tend to gravitate to that place. You know, something must be wrong with me. Something must be wrong with God. God's not coming through. Why am I going through this? Listen, nowhere in Scripture does it say, live for Jesus and you'll never experience any heartache or pain. Instead, the Bible does say things like this. In John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Guarantee it. One of the few guarantees of life. Ecclesiastes 3, it talks about how, you know, that in every life there are seasons of life. There are seasons of laughing and joy, but there are also seasons of sorrow and weeping. It says that there's a time to dance, a time to celebrate, but there's also a time to mourn. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5 that there's going to be rain in life, and the rain will fall on both the just and the unjust. In other words, regardless of who you are, difficulty and pain, it's a part of living in a lost and broken world. And we don't like that. I mean, we, we like the theology that says that, that, that God will always rescue you from all of your pain and difficulty. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that, that's not the case. I mean, aren't you glad you came today? What an encouraging sermon today. It gets better, I promise. It gets better. Now, the problem with that theology that God will always rescue you from pain and difficulty is it's not what God promises. But what I want you to understand this morning is that what he does promise is way better than that. His promise to you and his promise to me is simply this. Whatever you have to go through, I will be with you. That's his promise. I will be with you. I will never leave you and forsake you. Re regardless of whatever it is that you have to go through, I am going to go through it with you. You don't have to do it alone. And in the midst of it, because I'm there, I'm going to comfort you because I'm the source of all comfort. I'm going to give you peace because that's who I am. I'm the prince of peace. I'm going to resource you, and I'm going to walk with you, and I'm going to provide for you whatever it is that you need in order to make it through whatever it is that you have to go through. But in the end, I will bring you through. <laughs> that's God's promise. Come on, if God is anything... That's who he is. He is the God who brings us through. And it's that truth that we see repeated over and over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture. I mean, when you think about the great stories that we love in Scripture, you think about, think about people like Daniel. God never kept Daniel from the lion's den, right? Instead, what did he do? He entered into it with him. And he brought him through it. He, he never saved the three Hebrew children from the fiery furnace. Instead, what did he do? He entered into it with them. Who's that fourth man walking in the fire? It's Jesus. He entered into it and he brought them through it. 
God, God didn't save Noah from the flood. He didn't save David from the giant. He didn't even rescue his own son from the cross. Thank God for that. Instead, what he did was he was with them and he helped them defeat whatever it was that they had to go through in the moment. It's good news, guys. It's good news. And I believe this is for somebody here this morning. I don't know what you're going through. I just know that one of the great promises of Advent is the reality that the Messiah has come. Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, Jesus, God in the flesh. And if God is with us, who can be against us? Whatever it is that you're going through, when God is with you, you will get through it. I mean, here's, here's Zachariah and Elizabeth, and I mean, they're doing their best. They're righteous, they're blameless, they're, they're doing the best that they know in order to live in a way that's pleasing to God, and yet still, they experience the pain of desperately wanting to have a child and not being able to have a child for whatever reason. Listen, living a faithful life does not guarantee you'll always have a painful life. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is this. And this is so awesome. Somebody needs to hear this this morning. Lesson number two, your prayers don't have an expiration date. Amen. Prayers don't have an expiration date. Did you know that? This is so incredible. That, that the prayers that you have prayed in your life, the, pr the prayers that have been prayed for you by your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents those prayers are still in effect. They never expire. It's interesting because both Zechariah and Elizabeth's names have meaning. Of course, we know in this culture that names meant something. And this was the case for them. Zechariah, that name means God remembers. For Elizabeth, her name is God keeps his promises. And so here in this story, you have two people who God has declared his promise over them as a people, and, and, and they've lived out their entire life in faithfulness, and yet here they are, way past the, the probability and the possibility of their prayers ever being answered. What, what they've prayed for hasn't happened yet. And on the surface, it seems like that their names are a joke that God has not remembered and God has not kept his promises. In fact, what's interesting is within this narrative, it gives the idea that after all of these years of hoping and praying with nothing happened, that, that Zechariah and Elizabeth have just kind of reconciled themselves to the reality that, that, it, that it's probably not going to happen. It probably isn't going to happen. Look at the first part of verse 13. When the angel appears to Zechariah, the angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. The, the original word that's used here for your prayer carries with it a couple of ideas. First of all, it's the idea of a prayer that was once prayed. A long time ago. It, it's a prayer that, that I had once prayed a long time ago. But the second idea it also carries with it is that it's a prayer that I no longer pray anymore. I, I prayed it. Didn't happen. I believed it. 
didn't happen. I cried out for it. I hoped for it. But time has passed and nothing has happened. And so now I've just kind of reconciled myself to the reality that for whatever reason, it's just not going to happen. And so as a result, I don't even pray for it anymore. If the truth were to be told, there are some here in this room, maybe some who are worshiping with us online, that this is your reality. That there's something that at one time you prayed passionately for. You, you believed God for, but time has passed. And the years have flown by. And, and honestly, whatever dream it was, you, you, you just gave up on it a long time ago. For, for some, you know, maybe, maybe you haven't totally given up. But if you're hanging on to anything, it's simply a thread. If that's you, I want you to know something this morning. You're in good company. You're not alone. In fact, the, 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 you're in good company because the, the, this, this theme of long-awaited prayers or long-awaited answers to prayer fill the pages of Scripture from beginning to end. I mean, think about it. Think about stories of people like Abraham and Joseph and Rachel and Moses, and Daniel, and on and on and on and on. The children of Israel, come on. All these are stories of people waiting for God to answer some prayer that they prayed. Waiting, 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 waiting. This is the idea here. It's been 400 years. People have been crying out for a Messiah. God, we need to deliver God, send the Messiah. God, send the Messiah. God, send the Messiah. Waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth for decades have held on hope for, a son, hope for a son, but now they're old and they're well beyond the possibility and the probability of ever having what they long for, this child. And so they've, they've just done what you and I would do. They've resolved themselves to the fact that it's probably not going to happen. It's impossible. So why keep praying? But in that moment, when all hope is gone, God sends an answer to a prayer that they're not even praying anymore. He says, Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. For, for, for Jewish people, whenever they, they talk about God hearing a prayer or hearing us, they, they equated that to God acting. It was the same thing. God has heard your prayers, the angel says. And he's just been waiting for the right moment to respond. But the time has come. And now God is going to move in a way that only he can move. Which brings us to lesson number three. Not only you know, do we, is there no guarantees living a faithful life will be a painless life and uh, not only do our prayers have no expiration date, but lesson number three, and this is a good one, God's timing is always perfect. His timing is always perfect. Now, his timing may be different than our timing. Probably is. But his timing is always perfect. And I know, I know that that sounds cliche. But I'm telling you, if we could just grab a hold of this truth and just rest in it. I mean... Who here likes waiting? Anybody? I hate waiting. I, 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 there's nothing I hate more than waiting. And so I understand that, that, you know, better than anybody else, that waiting stinks. But I also know this, as I look back over my own life, 
that if God had done everything I wanted according to my timeline, things would really be a mess. God has his own timeline. And his timeline is designed to fulfill his redemptive purpose in the world. My timeline, our timeline, goes back to lesson number one. We want to avoid pain. We want to avoid difficulty. We don't, want to, we don't want to experience any discomfort. And so we're like, God, do this now. I need for you to do this now. This is uncomfortable, and I want out of it. All the while, God is thinking redemptive, redemptive, redemptive. I love the words of Paul found in Romans chapter 5 about God's timing. He says this. He says, at just the right time, Christ died for us. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. At just the right time. In Galatians chapter 4, he says something similar. He says, when the right time came, God sent his son. At just the right time. God's timing is perfect. And we need, to, we need to understand that when God moves, it's always at just the right time. And so if, if Zechariah and Elizabeth's story is anything, it's a story of God's perfect timing. In fact, think about this. If God would have answered their prayer for a son when they wanted it, Mary wouldn't have been born yet. I mean, we, we, we believe that she's somewhere around 14, 15 years old when, when she has Jesus. And so she wouldn't have been born yet. And, and, and uh, as, as Mary's child, Jesus, comes into the world, the, Elizabeth's child, John the Baptist, those two are meant to work in concert with each other. John the Baptist was intended to prepare the way for Jesus, to set the stage for Jesus. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth had to wait for just the right time because God had a plan. And that plan needed to come into fruition. You see, so often the reason we get stuck in our own timing is because we don't have the ability to see any further than ourselves. Come on. God's vision is so much broader than that. He sees not only how he wants to move in your life and in my life, he sees how he wants to take what he's doing in your life and my life and use it in the lives of other people. And so his timing is always perfect. Last one, lesson number four. This is, this is my favorite. This is worth the price of admission right here. Lesson number four. God loves taking our impossible and making it possible. God loves to take impossibilities and make them possibilities. If you haven't heard anything else that I've said this morning, please hear this. This is who God is. This is what God does. He loves to take our impossible situations and turn them on their heads and make the impossible possible. And this is something that we see illustrated again in Scripture over and over and over again. Jesus, this is the way he lives his life. In John chapter 2, he's at a wedding. You remember this story? And, and he's at this wedding, and they run out of wine. And, and so what does he do? He sees that they're out of wine, and he says, no problem. I see this impossible situation. Fill the wine jars with water. Don't you think they were all like, impossible? You're giving us water, we need wine? 
See, see, sometimes what God will send into our life and give us isn't what we expect because he's going to take it and turn it and use it in a way that we don't expect. And, and so he, he says, fill, fill the jars, the wine jars with water. And, and, and they're like, impossible. Not for Jesus. He's like, boom, turns the water into wine. Makes the impossible possible. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus, we find him on a hillside teaching to a group of people, about 5,000. And, and it gets to be lunchtime. They've been there all morning, and now the people are hungry. And so he tells the disciples, feed them. And all they can scrounge up are, are like a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. And they're, they're like, Jesus, we can't feed 5,000 people with this. It's impossible for them, but not for Jesus. Because Jesus does what he always does. He takes the impossible and makes it possible. He feeds the entire crowd. And after everybody's had their fill, they have more leftovers than what they started with. Did, did you get that? Come on. This is who God is. His leftovers are more than we can muster on our own. I thought that would have way more of an impact than it actually had on me. I want you to get this. The leftovers. In, in one passage of scripture, it says the fragments. Pick up the fragments. The broken pieces. The stuff that everybody's discarded. Pick it up. And what Jesus can do with those broken pieces are more than what we can do with our own lives. Oh, come on. This is who God is. He's the God of the impossible. You, you know the difference between impossible and possible? Two letters. I am. I'm not really sure that God can do that. I'm not really sure my circumstances are ever going to change. I'm not convinced that my life is ever going to be better. I'm not, I'm not. See, the difference between impossible and possible is simply you. When we get out of the way and when we invite Jesus into the situation, our impossibility all of a sudden becomes a possibility. See, I don't think, see, impossible is not even in God's vocabulary. Never spoke it, never heard it, doesn't know what it is. God specializes in making the impossible possible. For Zachariah and Elizabeth, they discovered this, you know, on their own. They had tried everything that they knew to do to have a child. Nothing had worked. This was an impossible situation. Elizabeth was barren, and now they're old. And so for them, having a baby had moved way beyond the realm of possibility. But it was in that moment, at just the right time, God looks at their circumstances and he says, yeah, finally, now I can do something. Finally, the time is right. Finally, now we have the recipe for a miracle. 
You see, one of the reasons why God waits until a situation becomes impossible to move is because when he does the miraculous, we cannot deny that it was God who did it. And God loves to demonstrate his power to us and for us. We're going to wrap things up. I'm going to invite Brian to come. I don't know this morning what your impossibility is. That that prayer that you once prayed, maybe prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, but nothing happened. And so the truth is, you quit praying that prayer a long time ago. That that dream that you once had that now is, is nothing more than a vague memory because You let go of it years ago. That situation that you just come to reconcile within yourself, it's just the way it is. Anything else would be impossible. This is for somebody this morning. Maybe you're here and you're you're like, I just, I just wish like Zechariah and Elizabeth that God would send an angel and he would speak to me. Guess what? He did. I'm your angel. (laughs) The book of Revelations, I'm serious, in the book of Revelations, it it talks about that pastors are angels. It calls pastors angels. See, an angel is simply a messenger from God. That's what pastors are supposed to do. And so this morning, I'm your angel, dressed in plaid. We're in Jordans. <laughs> and so here's what, what God is saying to you this morning. I have heard your prayer. I have heard your prayer. It hasn't gone on deaf ears. I, I have heard your prayer. Now, you may have to go through some stuff. You may have to experience some discomfort and some pain. But what I came to tell you this morning is that God has heard your prayer. Even though you haven't prayed for it for a long time, I came to remind you that prayers never have an expiration date. And that at just the right time, God will do what only God will do because that's who he is. He's a God who specializes in taking impossible situations and turning them on their head and making them possible. And that's what he wants to do for you this morning. And so here's what we're going to do as we close this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. And I just believe there are some here today, I, I, you know, I'm preaching to myself today, Sometimes we do that, you know. David used to talk to himself, used to talk to his heart. He'd say, oh, my heart, why are you so discouraged within me, you know? Be encouraged. And so sometimes we do that. But if you're here this morning, and this is you, man, a prayer that you prayed and you waited and waited and waited and the answer hasn't come, a dream that you've had that you let go of, This morning, I just want to pray for you. I want to encourage you. God's heard your prayer. And so if that's you this morning, just as a sign 
of receiving whatever it is that God wants you to do, I want to invite you. If, you. if you want to, you don't have to. Just take your hands, palms up. This is in a kind of a posture of receiving. I want to pray over you today. God, today, we thank you for... For the reality of who you are. We thank you for these stories that you've given to us that are more than stories. They represent real life people who went through real life struggles and live lives just like we do. Face difficulty, face pain, face challenges. Tried to live in such a way that would be pleasing to you. Waited upon you had questions, wrestled with things, were determined to follow you. And we get to read how you worked in their lives. And this morning, I stand here, and I stand in front of a bunch of people who are here in person and online, and our story isn't over yet. Some of us find ourselves in that in-between time between prayers prayed and prayers answered. And today, Father, for each one today who have prayed prayers and are waiting upon you, Lord, your word tells us that those who wait upon you will renew their strength, that they'll rise up on wings like eagles and soar. And Lord, I just pray that today over each one. Help us to wait upon you in faith until you do what only you can do. Today, I, I just profess, declare, confess, you are our hope. Our only hope is in you. And so, God, today we pray that you would be with us in the painful circumstances, the challenging times. Help us to be faithful. Help us to, to live lives of righteousness before you. Help us to hold on to you and you alone. Let us not grow weary in doing good, but to live lives of humility because we understand that in due season, you will lift us up and you will do what only you can do. So I pray that over each one today, Lord. Release whatever it is that you want to do on each one today, especially during this season where it's a season of hope. And so we live with that hope. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.